Hello Pod Pals and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I lied and said that last week was going to be the last episode for a while, and then I got a very exciting email about interviewing this week's guest, and here we are. That guest is New York-based cinematographer Ashley Connor, someone whose work I've been a big fan of for quite some time. She has lensed some of my favourite independent films, including Tramps, First Match and The Miseducation of Cameron Post, and as a regular collaborator with Josephine Decker, having shot Butter on the Latch, Thou Wast Mild and Lovely, and Madeline's Madeline. Ashley has also shot music videos for Angel Olsen, Beach House and MGMT, plus worked on TV shows like Broad City, Rami and High Maintenance, so I think it's safe to say uh, she's probably one of the coolest DPs working today, and certainly someone whose work I'm just always in awe of. She came on the podcast to talk about her career thus far, but also shooting a new movie called True Things, directed by Harry Whitliffe, who was on the podcast many, many episodes ago, talking about her directorial debut, Only You. True Things is her second feature, and stars Ruth Wilson as a dissatisfied woman who gets into a passionate and slightly toxic relationship with Tom Burke, and must sort of find her way back to herself. I think it's a fearless and visceral and feverish piece of cinema about female sexuality and desire, and I think Harry is fast becoming one of our most exciting filmmakers in the UK and I also think Ashley's cinematography which has always been very muscular and balletic and dynamic is a perfect match for depicting this tempestuous relationship. We also talk about how Ashley got her start in indie films as well as the work she did to support herself, how she has developed this movement and emotion-based cinematography practice, shooting sex scenes and finding a new language for the depiction of women's pleasure, working with and responding to actors and why cinematography is often like being another actor in the room, as well as power structures on film sets and how Ashley prioritises radical vulnerability to change that dynamic. It was a really special conversation. I think Ashley is a very talented artist and filmmaker and proved also to be a very genuine and compassionate person and just someone I think that we're very lucky to have making movies and putting women's feelings and desires at the forefront of cinema. True Things is out in UK cinemas now. If you go to truethings.film you can find showings near you and I highly recommend that you do. This is episode 110 of Best Girl Grip. So I always start these podcasts uh, in the realm of like college. I'm wondering if you did go to college and if so, what you studied there. I went to Ithaca College in upstate New York. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, and was like, I want to go as far away from all the LA schools as I could get, and Ithaca was the one I chose. I majored in film and photography. I did a BFA, and I mainly studied, you know, what sort of grew for my practice was my interest in experimental film. So while I was there, I would shoot other people's projects and then kind of make my own shorts. So preceding that, I'm wondering when you first like picked up a camera and thought like, huh, this is fun. Like, I like playing around with this. You know, I wish I had some like great stories for me, but I really didn't. I think, you know, I like telling stories. I liked films. I loved films. And I was an athlete. You know, I played a lot of sports. I was really focused on football. And that's sort of where I saw my life kind of headed. And then in early in high school, I blew up one of my knees and 
it was kind of during that time when I had this like grand realization. I was like, bodies are fragile. I'm not going to play professional soccer. And even if I did, women don't get paid. <laughs> like you have to do something else. And I sort of adjusted then to filmmaking and sort of, that was the first time that I acknowledged that filmmaking was a job. I think I had never considered it in that way before even growing up in LA. And I think, so it was probably around my sophomore year of high school that I started making my own little films with friends and, you know, mini DV cameras, but I still, I still, you know, I try to, I try to sort of converse with my younger self. I didn't really consider cinematography to be the thing I was interested in. And it sort of made sense as soon as I got to film school and picked up a camera and I realized, oh, this is what I love. Like I started learning more about how to use cameras. And I really just took it to it and took to, you know, I think I have a more difficult time with language and expressing myself through language. And the camera has always made more sense to me. Mm. Can you expand on that? Like what about it made sense to you? Like what did you love about it? I think as I've grown, it's shifted because I love actors. I love working with actors. I love being present to performance. I love being very much a conduit for emotion when I'm behind the camera and very present. But I think at first actors are really abstract, especially when you're a film student, like the concept of working with actors really scared me and a camera just made so much more sense. It was very physical, it was very object-based. It had rules, it, you know, I learned on film. So all my film school, I was shooting on film. So it was very practice and very much something I could control. Whereas actors felt so out of my control. That probably says more to my personality um, than anything else I like. I like a certain level of control. But yeah, I just, it made sense. And I feel like what I didn't understand prior to my film experience with like, how light works and how the chemical process works, I suddenly became very invested in what that was in hand processing and, you know, sort of learning how the chemicals play into the image making and, you know, experimenting with light. And, you know, what I loved about my film school, which, you know, they would probably hate to hear is like, we didn't have a lot of big gear. We weren't the fanciest film school. We weren't like the LA school that sort of came with massive lights you know I learned to light on like three a three light omni kit so you know just kind of getting really uh crafty with limited resources and I actually think that that that's what made me very advantageous in my early days was that I could kind of just come with one light like I think Josephine's Josephine Decker's first couple films I had one light I worked with it myself you know I kind of gripped a little bit on that was smiling and lovely and had a few more things to play with but really I just kind of showed up and used practicals and sort of moved things around and brought a lot of bulbs so I was sort of a one-woman show and could be that and that's sort of how I survived for a lot of years just being the person who said yes and showed up and was like I don't give a shit about cameras I don't care about all the fancy gear I was like give me a DSLR one light and I can do something with it I think that ethos sort of built a practice. I think it made it also harder for me to grow to the point that I'm at now and uh, get away from like the quote unquote indie look. But I don't regret how I kind of got to this place now. I think it really is a reflection of who I am as a person and my interests and my experimental sort of identity that I love to celebrate. It's like, 
my favorite filmmakers are people who, you know, who've never cared about things like 4K. They don't care about, you know, they care about telling a story. And I think that's where I lie as a DP is like, I really am in service of the filmmakers' desires and storytelling. Well, thinking about those early days when you were shooting like friend shorts and kind of, yeah, as you say, like showing up with a DSLR and, and doing everything, were you doing anything else beyond that to support yourself? Or was it kind of cinematography was a career from the start? And my friend called me and was like, do you want to come work on this vampire short uh, with Melissa Oftermark, who was the bassist of Hole and Smashing Pumpkins? And I was like, yes, I do. It was unpaid. And I ended up showing up at this cool house uh, in Long Island. And there were all these female artists. And it wasn't a vampire short. It was more of a top shop advertisement. But I was the only female on set who was working it was a really small crew. We stayed there for a bunch of days and all the women had children. And I grew up babysitting forever. I was still babysitting men. So I just told them at the end of the job, you know, like I was moving a stand and I was like, well, if you ever need a babysitter, I'm available. And they all did. And so I just kind of started babysitting for these artists and filmmakers in New York who really informed my early days and really kind of took care of me. It's like, you know, suddenly they'd need a video portion for a show they were doing and I would show up and shoot it and edit it. And one of them had a friend who ran a company called Ballet Beautiful and they needed help making their videos every month because she wanted to have a digital platform. And this was really kind of early for digital streaming of workouts. She was kind of at the forefront of this. And honestly, that's what sustained me for years and years. So all these early indie films I was doing, and I like to be honest about this, none of them paid. Like, truly none of them paid. I always knew that I could make rent and have a, and utilities and have a little bit of money for food, making these ballet workout videos every month. And then I could really commit to my cinematography. And I AC'd as well. You know, it's not that I didn't, but by the time I was offered more union jobs, and to join the union as an assistant camera person, I stopped there and I was like, well, if I'm going to do cinematography, I really have to kind of commit to doing that. Because once you get paid doing something that you don't, that isn't your end goal, it's really difficult to move on from that paycheck. And so I just kept my overhead really low. And I like to say this, like, I like to be honest, because it's a difficult life and I'm really lucky to be in the position I am. But like shooting all the indie films, I was living paycheck to paycheck all through my twenties and, you know, into like early thirties, it wasn't until I did television in America that I sort of found more financial security. And now things are much different and I have more choices, but you know, it was a lot of sacrifice and a lot of work, but yeah, babysitting and ballet workout videos got me through those early days and um, kept me protected. It kept me, it kept me capable of taking no budget movies that I really wanted to do. I love the layers of that, though, that you were like looking after their kids and they could, they were kind of looking after you. Um, but yeah, I appreciate the honesty about that. And I'm also interested in the fact that, yeah, you spoke there about sort of having to commit to cinematography. I'm wondering if there was like a turning point where that happened or, you know, like a project but that you feel like calcified that commitment. I think it was mainly seeing my other friends. I think it was mainly that I had a lot of older friends from college who also worked in camera department. And hanging around, not just them, because they were still young and, you know, of my age, <laughs> around my age. But it was more seeing, hearing all these assistants talk, being on set, hearing 
the gaffer talk, being on set, just hearing people kind of be like, this isn't what I want to be doing, but I'm being paid good money to do it. And it's really, and now I feel this in a way that I'm glad I recognized this in my early twenties. Like now it's really difficult for me to take a no budget movie. It's really difficult for me to take low budget work because I'm being paid a rate for my time that is great also makes it difficult in my mind to suddenly go so low. So I try to balance it out. I try to kind of do one for me, one for, you know, my career in life. But yeah, it was mainly hearing other people's desires and what stopped them and sort of what I heard was roadblocks. And I had a DP who I worked with who kind of, you know, I was hustling, I was taking all this work and I babysat for him. He gave me a camera to shoot one of my first features, but he, we were in the car and I was asking him, I was like, Graham, what do you, like, what are the difficult things here? And we had just come from a shoot where it was just us two and one light, you know, it's a commercial. And he was just like, Ashley, if I can t- give you one piece of advice, like sometimes saying no is the best tool. And sometimes defining what you will and won't do can help you actually build the kind of career that you want. He was like, I've said yes. You know, he was much older than me. You know, he was like, I've said yes so much. Like I never said no. And so eventually he's like, you're young, you're hungry. You can say yes to things, but eventually you have to say no when it really does feel wrong. And he was like, you know, you kind of have to save your specialness and free labor for something that really feels like what you want to be doing and saying no when it just feels like exploitative. And I kind of took that in and was like, I hear you. And I sound like I haven't done branded content, but I really didn't build a career on commercials. I tried to build it on my narrative side. Yeah. And I feel like you can definitely see that like there's such a thread and such a, a voice throughout all of your work. And I'm interested in your first collaboration with Josephine Decker, Butter on the Latch, and how you met her and, and why you said yes to that particular project. I did this music video for a band. It was my first time shooting on a DSLR. It kind of, you know, it doesn't look great is what I'll say, but I had a really great time with the band and it taught me a lot. And it was sort of the first time that I had worked with somebody who wasn't a friend from college, like a friend from college had recommended me for the music video. And yeah, it felt very special going to a set where I didn't know everybody. But from meeting that band, one of the band members went to a party, some art event and met Josephine and was Josephine was talking about needing a new DP. And he was like, I've got somebody for you. And then he both he invited both of us to his birthday the next week and to sort of get us to meet. And we met immediately argued about gender politics and uh, objectification of women. And we just really got into it. And she was like, I'm shooting a short coming up. Do you want to do it with me? I was like, of course I do. Yes. And so our, you know, our friendship and our collaboration was kind of born from our, in, our external interests in like theory and art. And, you know, Josephine isn't, especially then wasn't like a practice filmmaker. She had made a documentary, but hadn't made narrative work. And me, I was just out of college. I showed her my thesis film. I sent her my sort of short experimental films that I had made and she loved them. And that's sort of how we started working together. You know, her first short we shot on film and then Butter on the Latch and That Was Mild and Lovely were shot on DSLRs. And I look back and just how fearless we were. And, you know, we showed up in Mendocino. It's funny, Criterion just posted the film for the female gaze series they're doing. And I saw this image, this out of focus blurry shot 
And it just took me right back. I always think that filmmaking is kind of like keeping an elongated diary. I can I can go back to the moment that I'm shooting things and really think about who I was and what I was doing. And, you know, we showed up in Mendocino. I had one battery powered light. There was no electricity. At first, Josephine rented me a Steadicam because she wanted it to be on Steadicam. And I had no idea. So I was like, sure, I can do Steadicam. I had a DSLR. I could not with a full Steadicam rig. And I'm not a Steadicam operator. That got pushed aside really fast. But the image that they posted was from the first shot of me wearing the rig. And it was, I just remember having a full-blown panic attack. Like, this is going to be a disaster. I have no idea what I'm doing. But those early films, you know, it was just Josephine, me, a sound person on Butter on the Latch and the actors staying in a cabin without electricity. There was one building at the campground that had electricity, so I'd have to go charge the batteries there and kind of run back and forth wherever we were in the woods. But we really just went for it. And that's a movie that's built out of intuition. It's a, And I think our collaboration was really built out of intuition and Josephine seeing something in me that maybe I didn't see in myself at the time, but she really gave me the space. You know, I had seen her in mumblecore films and no offense to that scene, but it's really not what I want to do visually. And I remember, I remember talking to her and I was like, I'm interested in making this film, but if you want it to be like a mumblecore movie, I'm really not going to do it. And she was like, no, no, you can get as weird as you want. You can do whatever. And that's what I always loved about working with Josephine is that she always says yes. She's like, yes. And the old improv saying, you know, she really wants to explore things. She really wants to be excited by the image, especially in the early days when we didn't have monitoring and she would just watch the footage at night. She would see what I was doing. It was just like, do more of that, do more exploration. And we'd shoot these really long scenes of the actors talking. And I just sort of float around and get all the coverage. And that's sort of what we've, called ash cam over the years is like well ash cam a scene and I that just means I shoot it seven different times in different ways and sort of remember what I've done and kind of build out the coverage that way it's a very fluid very physical (laughs) process I think my more recent investigations especially as I do more commercial normal projects and I'm working on much bigger things I try to like communicate with who I was in my early twenties and how fearless I was and how bold I was and how, you know, I didn't even think about an audience. I didn't even think about certain tools. I just did. And I think that that's something I try to challenge myself to reconnect with. Mm, Definitely. I'm really interested in that, especially I I actually once wrote an essay about your work and, you know, looked at a lot of everything that you've done, basically, and and how it's it just felt very empathy driven and and tactile and subjective, um, and so much movement. And I'm really interested in the idea of like being weird. And I'm wondering how you achieve that, like how you push boundaries in terms of what the camera can do and visual language. You know, is it a thought process you're having, like, no, I need to be weirder now, or is it just happening quite organically for you? You know, I, it's a practice I started at college. You know, if you if you saw the photography I was doing or the films I was making all on film, what I was interested in was bending the image. What I was interested in is, you know, the filmmakers I loved sort of knew how to create a poeticism and a depth to their image making that didn't have to do with what was necessarily in front of the camera. And that's what I've always responded most to narrative filmmaking is like, 
the poetic nature that you can expressively create through images. You know, I think there's this idea like the mammoth uninflected image, you know, shot of a clock, whatever is actually just a shot of a clock. And I think I've never related to that. I'm always thinking that, you know, you can kind of go places, you can take people on a journey with the images and certain subtle shifts and ways that you move can bring people into an experience. And that's what I've always sort of tried to get to with my work is the experiential nature of cinema because it is different than other art practices. It is different than other narrative means of storytelling. And for me, that has to do with the image and sound and how those play. It's like how those interact in the narrative. And to me, I can't do it on every project now. And that's sort of, that was sort of my growth period was realizing when to hold back and when to really refine. But that's still what I love the most. <laughs> like going, if that's what I loved about True Things, you know, when I sort of talked to Harry about the movie and she wanted it to be this experience, I was like, that's something I can grab onto. That is something that I can hold on to. And I really related to the character of Kate and her experience and, you know, this, uh, this idea of like jumping off the deep end for somebody. And that's something that's something I am as a person, as a friend, as a romantic partner. You know, I want to jump off deep ends and like go there. And so it was really about talking about what that experience meant. I think that this is at the heart of my work is I love talking to filmmakers about what you want the audience to feel. How do you bring them there visually and kind of get to like the underbelly of emotional feeling? And I want them to be visceral. I want you to respond. I use I think. And maybe that comes from the DSLR days. Like I didn't understand how big the images would get, but seeing those big, it was like, this just feels different. And so I really want to challenge audiences in certain ways. I always say uh, making a beautiful image is really easy. Everyone has camera phones. Everyone does it all the time. We're all ingesting so many beautiful images all the time. So for me, mine's got to go deeper than that. I think my work never makes a great still, makes a good experience. Like I'm not really an Instagram DP. You know, I don't have those kind of frames to grab from. But I think what I do have is that my frames add up into a feeling. They have to be experienced, I guess. As someone who once tried to take screen grabs from Madeline's Madeline, I would, yeah, definitely, definitely agree with that. I mean, I, I tried to, and it just doesn't capture it. I just look at it and I'm like, I see it. But this moment, it's about the movement. It's about, you know, I was called a dance with the actors, like especially Ruth Wilson. You show up for them because they're showing up to play the character. And when you see that level of honesty or like that level of commitment to performance, it really challenges me as a collaborator with them to do more and to really like listen to them in the moment. It's like being another actor in the room. I want to listen. I want to feel, I want to see, but I want to respond when the moment feels right. And I think that I can't really teach her. I don't know what it is that I respond to. I just know that I respond. (laughs) Well, that's a perfect segue to talking more deeply about true things. And I'm working with Ruth Wilson and Tom Burke, you know, 
I'm just always fascinated with that relationship with a cinematographer and actor because you're so close, probably closer than the director is. And so I'm assuming that there would be conversations with the actor beforehand about how you're going to work and how the camera's going to move and maybe how they like to work. You know, is that something you're setting up quite formally? Or again, it's it's happening just by playing with one another and getting a feel for how one another moves and thinks. For me, it comes from the director. So it comes from my conversations with Harry. So I knew what kind of film Harry wanted. I knew what Harry was trying to achieve in the visuals. So I kind of let her speak to them more about how she wants it to be run and then bring me into the process. I think a lot of the conversations I have with actors leading up to scenes, especially for True Things, were more about the approach to sex scenes. And I knew Ruth had had bad experiences and I'm somebody who shot a lot of sex scenes. And from, you know, my early days to now, I've shot many, many, many sex scenes. And it's something I'm very committed to and something I love because I feel like the depiction of pleasure on screen for women has been so limited that to offer something else to the cinematic canon is something I'm, I love to do. And something I love to challenge because I think sex for women is very different and ways of orgasming and climaxing is very different and it's more cyclical and it builds differently than a man's pleasure. And so much of cinema history has shown us what men's pleasure looks like and feels like. And to me, I'm very not interested in that. I'm very interested in finding a different language, finding a more real language to depict sex So it's really establishing rules with the actors. I'm somebody who I've shot films where it's it's no nudity and then something slips in. And then I hear later that maybe, maybe the director asked the actor if they would just let this stay in the movie, basically like push nudity. And that to me, I, when I'm working with actors, I want everybody to say a unanimous yes. <laughs> like I want to feel like everyone is on the same page. No one feels out of their comfort zone. I want to hear what they, what's on the table for them and what's off the table. And I really try to limit what I shoot around those boundaries. Because I think that if I cross a boundary in a scene like that, then I've betrayed a trust, a human trust between people. So I like talking about rules. I like talking about, you know, I like asking actors, like especially Ruth and this, you know, Tom, Tom wasn't the main character. So he has to be a little bit far away from me and a little bit distance. Like I kind of have to understand him from Kate's perspective. And that's how I needed to relate to him. So I never really got into, I mean, I love Tom and he's an incredible performer and actor, but conceptually to me, it was about still not understanding that person. So But my conversations with Ruth, you know, especially if I wanted to experience, I wanted the camera to experience more. I was kind of like, what are you looking at in the scene when you when you look around? Where are you staring? What are you feeling? And then seeing her in the moment and kind of quickly internalizing that into how the coverage could speak to what she's experiencing. So that also has to do, you know, and Harry and I, we sometimes it would mean not starting in the wide. Sometimes it would just mean getting into it because we wanted to see where she wanted to go. And I'm somebody who lets actors move. I like to light spaces as much as possible. I can piss off gaffers a lot because they want to be doing so much. And sometimes I want to be doing so much, but 
for a movie like this, I had to give them free range. I didn't want so many dead zones. I wanted it to be about where Ruth wanted to walk. And that means releasing some of the tension of my lighting and not being so boxed in. It's just saying, go experience the space. Again, the pleasure of my job is great performances. And I think I'm somebody who is an empath. And when I can feel something, I feel it very strongly. So I try to follow that feeling and I try to not ignore it. I'm, you know, I've like recently started therapy, which is great for everybody. Uh, everyone should do it. But I've been exploring these conversations about like what makes me such an emotional conduit. And I think it's my strength in storytelling that I'm just like a little open gasket, ready to ready to feel it all at any moment. <laughs> I also want to talk about this really gorgeous scene in a nightclub and just on a technical level in terms of how you set that up and how you choreographed it with Ruth. It seemed like, you know, a classic Ashcam moment. So how did that come together? The other part of this that I haven't even brought up was we started shooting the movie and got a week into filming when lockdown started. So we shot a week of The Office, you know, the movie has this sort of like boring office job that she works and we only shot The Office. And then we took a break for months. And when we came back, you know, it was a very different world, obviously, but it required more trust with the actors, more presence. It was much smaller. It was so scary making a film at that time. Those early days, there was just such a lack of understanding of how the virus worked that you were so scared all the time and so anxious, but it meant keeping a really tight quarters with the filmmaking team and with our little group out in Ramsgate, you know, we kind of only hung out with each other and, or didn't hang out at all. Like we're just little shut-ins, but the dance number was our last night in Ramsgate before we went to Spain. But we knew that we had more control with background there. So we kind of adjusted but it also meant that we could only, we only had maybe 20 people. I forget how many people we had to fill the nightclub, but it was not enough to fill the nightclub. So we just sort of used the background to create this circle around Ruth. And I created the lighting around the club to just flash and blink and be really dark. But that was a necessity to the background. We knew that we couldn't fill the space. So we just had to build it to be something different. And I think on the day, Perry and I were talking and trying to figure out how to break this down. It was like, well, what if we just lost all the people and built it between like a throbbing club and her own personal experience? And it just clicked into place for both of us. Like, oh, of course, that's how that's how we should approach it. And Ruth was just game. You know, Ruth chose the songs, picked it out, and I just let her go. And, you know, I was getting hit with dancing bodies everywhere. But it was also so fun because I think that no one in that room had done that in so long that it also felt very cathartic for me to be dancing around with the camera. It was a really fun day. And so it felt so good and so fulfilling to be in that moment with her. And it felt so pleasurable for all of us. And I think that you really read that behind the camera and in front and everybody was having a great time on that day. Yeah, absolutely. That definitely comes across. 
And then another relationship I'd love to talk about is the one with the colorist, just because again, like it's it's so key to the look of the film. And I know that Jody, who worked Jody Davidson, who colored graded this film, is yeah a major talent in the UK. Um, what was your relationship like, and what were the kind of conversations you were having to talk about yeah palette and and what the color was going to look like? Uh, Jody and I, I had shot a few episodes of this BBC show called Trigonometry, but my friend Sean Price Williams had to leave the show. So they called me and do a couple episodes and they generously invited me to the grade back in England. So that's how I met Jody was she was the colorist for Trigonometry and we just really got along. We speak a similar language. And so when true things came up, I was like, they wanted me to grade in the UK. And I thought immediately of Jody. And we made LUTs together. We looked at test footage ahead of time. But we really, you know, for me, I'm somebody who likes color. I like contrast. I like saturation. I want it to feel rich. I like a really rich image. None of my, I don't think that there's any of my work that looks flat. Uh, I'm just not of that mind, you know, or spirit. I like things to be punchy. So, the grade talk, you know, it was just how do we keep pushing? How do we keep pushing the intensity? And like, especially as Kate's experience kind of opens up her world and expands it and she becomes somebody who desires, not even just this guy, this guy is like a blip. She just becomes somebody who desires something in herself beyond what she has. And so really pulling out those colors and that experience and letting her life become more full was really important to the coloring process and how we approached the image and, you know, how we approached uh, the color palette with like Andy Drummond, the production designer, you know, how to make, especially the office, the office was sort of our foil. How do we make it very neutral? How do you kind of make it really gross? And sometimes I think there's a, there's a desire to make things look better than they do. And to me, I kept on trying to tell like my lighting department, I was like, no, this space should just look gross. The space needs to feel terribly oppressive. It shouldn't feel cool. It shouldn't be lit super well. I was like, it kind of just has to feel like an oppressive office. And, you know, Andy with the design really built spaces that felt oppressive or more or, uh, disgusting coloring palettes together and, it grew from there. I want to touch on that point that you raised earlier about being like an emotional conduit and also the fact that the job is really physical, you know, whether or not you're in a nightclub, you're often like lifting heavy equipment. And also just when you're giving so much of yourself to a project, like how do you take pause or like take a step back and reset? It feels like, yeah, a very intense job. So then how do you debrief from that? I mean, it's tough. I just did three days on a, on a low budget music video this week, which is why I look like this. Uh, but I am so sore in the best way possible. I sort of build up this resistance when I'm operating. And then I can kind of like tomorrow, if you put a camera on me, I'd be much more fine. But because I've taken a month and a half off, I suffered this week going full handheld for, you know, a 12 hour day. But to me, I, I work out, I lift weights. I have to keep a level of strength in my body because especially as I get older, it's just getting more and more difficult to recover. And that's a reality of aging, but I've always put so much, I've taken so much pride in what my body is capable of. 
and what I can do with the camera and how I can move with the camera. Like grips when they work with me for the first time and they see me kind of do a full bend into like a knee slide and pop back up again. They're like, what are you doing? <laughs> again, my knees aren't as great as they used to be, but I, I really do have to. And this is what I tell young women. I'm like, it is physically demanding. I There's no two ways about it. You can take away the weight of a camera. It doesn't matter if the balance is off, you're going to suffer <laughs> uh, and it's going to be heavy. So I try to really respect my body and listen to my body and keep it like a little machine, you know, especially when I meet with young women, I'm like, it is tough. I'm not going to tell you it's not not going to tell you it doesn't hurt. I'm not going to say it's easy. I'm going to say, and maybe this is my ex-athlete mentality of training, but you really do have to kind of rise to the occasion to like make it so that your body can function under the most stressful circumstances. Even if I wasn't operating, it's still physically demanding on your body because I'm also, I always want to be around the action. I always kind of have to see it through my eyes in some way, even if I'm having operators be at the cameras. You know, I just wrapped Nita Manzor's movie, Polite Society, and it's sort of like a kung fu kids flying through the air. And I had this great, real, this great realization, like something I've kind of been not embarrassed about, but weirdly like quiet about is I'm a black belt. And I studied, or I practiced karate and hapkido for a decade, over a decade. And as a kid, but I realized that that informs so much of my camera movement as well. And it informs so much of how I approach and like how I move with the camera. And so working on a movie that had karate in it was really fun to sort of re-engage with my past self. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm so excited for that film. You referenced obviously shooting a music video this week, and I know you've done stuff with Angel Olsen and, and you know, lots of other artists, but you've also, yeah, worked across TV features, even Jenny Slate's comedy special. Is that a conscious choice to like keep things fresh for you? And, and does it change the work or like does the nuts and bolts of what you're doing remain the same regardless of the format or medium? I think I didn't realize how unique my career has been until until somebody else says. And I was lecturing at Christine Vachon's class and she sort of brought it. I think it was in like an intro of me and she brought it up. And she was like, she's done this and this and this. And, uh, you know, she said how unique it was that I had sort of floated between all these practices. And I never thought about it like that because all my decisions relate to what I'm interested in. And, you know, Broad City is a show that I loved. I shot the final season. It was a show that I loved. Visually, it's not necessarily my thing. You know, it's comedy. Like it's, it's about the girls. It's about the comedy, but I love the show so much that I was like, of course I'll shoot it. Yeah, let's go. But to me, I just follow what I love. I follow voices that I love. I follow people that I want to work with. I think I didn't really realize how constructed certain people's careers were and how focused they were. And to me, I like being excited. I like differences. I like changing. I think that that's the beautiful thing about being a cinematographer and not just a director. Being a director, sometimes you have to like really refine your vision, especially early in your career so that people understand who you are and what you bring to the table. Unless of course you just want to be, you know, a studio person who shows up and is like affable and fun to work with and there's somebody, there's other people calling some shots, but you know, I think for me, I like the difference. I like changing over. I like that every couple of months, you know, last summer I shot an Amazon TV series with Sissy Spacek and JK Simmons. That'll be out soon called Night Sky. And 
that was a little bit more austere, a little bit more Spielberg-y, soft sci-fi. And then I went and I did Vita's movie, which is more like a tar- like a teenage Tarantino, kind of goofy, but really fun action movie. And to me, these are both parts of myself. These are por- both interests that I have. And I knew that I had Harry's movie coming out, which... You know, True Things is a little bit more of my artistic side and uh, my personal practice, but I like speaking so many different languages. I like I like expanding my practice and I like pushing my visual sensibility into these other realms because I think I think filmmaking has to be pushed forward. I think if we want it to adapt, if we want it to change, if we want to make space for new voices to come in, then we have to be able to tell stories differently <laughs> and we have to be open to showing them differently because they've only been fed to us in one certain way. So I think that that's what interests me. That's what interests me in doing a comedy special. You know, I am not a comedy special person, nor do I necessarily want to start a career shooting just comedy, but it was really exciting because I love Jenny so much. And I love Gillian, the director, Rose Pierre. And so it was really fun to sort of enter this strange space with them and approach it in my own way. You know, I working with the camera team on that one and the lighting designer, you know, I feel like the lighting designer just kept on being like, no, 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 that's not how we do it in the comedy special world. And when he saw the special, he emailed me. He was like, I loved, I loved it. Like you pushed me to kind of do just a little, just subtle differences, but we got to work together again on the Eric Andre special. And uh, he was like, anything you want. I was like, I trust you. I was like, okay. <laughs> I trust you now <laughs> but that like feels like it's such a good fit because Jenny is a comedian but like it's not like a comedy special that you'd expect like it weaves in autobiographical elements and kind of personal footage and it yeah as as you say you're a very kind of personal empathetic cinematographer and I, I feel like she's a very you know, you know intimate and empathetic comedian so it feels like a yeah, you're singing from the same hymn sheet. And I want to talk a little bit about Sharpstick because I know that's coming out in the UK um, this year. So, and again, like Lena feels like someone that you thought you should have worked with before. I feel like you would have been a great kind of DP for girls. But yeah, how did you board that project and and what was the experience of shooting it like? You know, I, back to my early 20s, babysitting for families. One of the women I babysat for was this artist, Sarah Sophie Flicker. And her husband, Jesse Peretz, who eventually goes on to direct a lot of girls and be an EP on girls. But this was right after I graduated from college and I felt like I knew a lot. And I remember Sarah would always talk about her other friend who was my age. Sarah would be like, you have to meet my other filmmaking friend. She's your age. She's so sweet. You'll get along. And I was like, thanks. But um, I got my own friends. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't even know what I was thinking, but she would always talk about Lena in this one way and we just never met up. And then I remember when girls came out, I was like, that was your friend. Or I remember when tiny furniture came out. Cause I was before. And I was like, that was the friend that you were telling me about is this incredible person. And I was like, I'm such an idiot. And then it just felt too opportunistic to be like, remember that girl, what was her name? Um, Lena Dunham? Let's hang. It almost felt like destiny for us to work together. And she had called a couple of times for smaller projects that didn't work into my schedule. And, you know, it felt like little ships in the night. We, we have a certain group of friends that really overlap. So when she called me for Sharpstick, it was, I was still in England and I just finished shooting Harry's movie and this one was going to go pretty fast, but America was still really shut down. So I was like, well, 
I can go see my family. I'm from LA. The movie was shooting in Los Angeles and it lined up with my dates. And I loved Lena. I loved meeting with Lena. But our first like in-person hangout was a sleepover at her house. And we just stayed up all night talking about our shared history and what we love about cinema. We just see the world quite similarly and we have similar reference points and we love a lot of the same films and artists. And Lena's probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. You know, she's so talented. And yeah, we just clicked. Sometimes it just kind of clicks. And I think for Lena and I really did. And so our collaboration stemmed from like a shared history, a shared practice, a shared love of certain reference points. And, you know, that movie was shot in 15 days in Los Angeles while they were peaking, like it was December, 2020. LA was going back into another lockdown and we had 15 days to make this movie right before Christmas. And luckily no one on the set got sick. We didn't, we made it so fast, so furious. And the movie's not perfect, but I think it says what we set out to say about a young girl in desire. You know, Lena's been in many edit rooms. And I think with girls, she learned to see what she needs and what she wants out of a scene. And so she's just really direct and like really knows what she wants and what she's after. And that's kind of the only way that you could shoot that movie in 15 days. I know that it's been, I guess, about a decade now since you shot Butter on the Latch. And I'm wondering if you've noticed any like significant changes in the role of the cinematographer or cinematography as an art form in general. You know, do you feel like you're doing a different job than you were 10 years ago? I think I float around into two kind of worlds now. I think that my sets are usually quite non-traditional. I'm somebody who wants to investigate power on a film set and really give space for people to have voices. That means my crew members, that means my collaborators. I want people to feel part of the process. I don't want to think that, you know, I can be a boss, I can be in charge, but I don't want people to think that that's only what it's about. I want it to be more flexible. I like mentoring young women on film sets I like, and I want them to actually succeed and like talk to me about career. Like I'm very open for education because I think I came up so differently than a lot of people. I didn't come up in a traditional film set world. So my early collaborations were so all encompassing. It was really about being there with the filmmaker, especially when I was working with filmmakers who were pretty untrained, you know, and I think my early 20s self was a little know-it-all. Now I realize that how little I knew, but it was so exciting to kind of grow into the filmmaker I am today, the person I am today. And I've learned, you know, there's a space and a time to be more present. And it kind of, I have to like step back a lot more. I have to establish different boundaries a lot more. But I like, I like being a part of the process. I, I like being a filmmaker, Again, this goes back to my practice. I don't think that image, I don't think that my job is the most important job on set. I think everybody's job is so important on a film set from sound to the PAs to everybody. And I really respect everyone who shows up to make a project together. And I think the livelihood of everybody involved informs how, how pleasant it can be to make the final project. So I really try to practice that 
on the film sets I'm on, I really try to make myself vulnerable to show them that, you know, maybe traditionally you've seen this kind of a DP always be this person, but I'm going to be different. And there's space for that. And there's growth and there's change for that. I think men have been given so many opportunities to fail and to have cronyism and to have a safety net and to have mentorship. And I'm somebody who didn't have a mentor. I'm somebody who sort of figured it out on her own. You know, to this day, it's not like I hang with a bunch of DPs. I'm still sort of in my own universe. But I also like my film sets to reflect that change. Um, You know, to me, there are systems that haven't benefited people of color, haven't benefited uh, women, haven't benefited minorities in general. And there's a power structure on a film set that has been so defined since the onset of the onset of filmmaking that I don't think speaks to how I like to work. I don't think speaks to me as a person. I think I like a more open-ended process. I think I like saying when I don't know something. I don't like to be the loudest voice all the time. And that means sacrificing some power. And that means approaching things differently. And that means being, you know, I'm pretty honest and vulnerable. Radical vulnerability is something that's so important to me. At least my future as a filmmaker, I want to reflect that. I want it to be a different environment where people see that other people can succeed and other types of people can succeed. And there are different ways of working than what we traditionally look at. Like I'm not somebody who's interested in the director who's screaming at everybody and being like a dictator on set. I don't like that. I like people who are kind. I like people that are generous of spirit and really respect people's involvement, really respect that everybody has things going on. That's not just, you know, that's not to say hold up everything for everyone's problems, but it is to say like, I think a general respect and understanding that there's something beyond just what you are making. Well, I really respect that. Um, and I'm yeah, very grateful that you're bringing that energy and honesty to the filmmaking world. Finally, I always end with asking my guest, what is a film from a woman director that you think is a bit of a hidden gem or something that you just return to often? You know, I always return to Maya Darren. I watch the movie At Land a lot, which I think is something that when I saw it, you know, I love Meshes of the Afternoon. I love all of Maya's work. But when I saw At Land, that spoke to me in a different way. And it speaks so much to my sensibilities as a filmmaker and it's informed a lot of my practice. And it's something that I like to remind myself from time to time of, just because I think what she did so revolutionary was free the camera and free free spaces. I think that that was something that really opened up my mind was that filmmaking, you can break space as much as you want. She just had such a clarity of surrealism that was so practical and grounded. And I think that that's sort of me in a nutshell. And so Atland is something that I really, when I need a good kick in the butt or I need a good brain shake, I revisit it to just see what the possibilities are. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for your openness and generosity today. It's been a real privilege to speak with you. Thank you so much. Wait, so did you, you wrote the article for Another Gaze? <laughs> yes, that was me. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. I, I'm like, it's around here. I treasure that. I treasure that essay so much. <laughs> Thank you. That means so much. It was a, such a pleasure to write and to, yeah, revisit your filmography. Really, that 
meant so much to me. So thank you so much for seeing me. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. This is actually the final episode for a while, so I will be back in a couple of months. 